Ladies and gentlemen, that's the final call for FK Alexander at the basement. Please make your way there now. Thank you. Hi, this is Stage Left and I'm Jen Harvey. My guest this episode is FK Alexander. FK is a Glasgow-based performance artist. Her work explores the callousness of pop cultural fantasies and deep and often difficult feelings. It is violent while tender, destructive and also restorative. Formally, it's ritualistic, repetitive, action-based and sometimes participatory for the audience. Tonally, it's destructive, but also undercut by care, as when she intimately holds hands with one audience member at a time while singing along with Judy Garland in the hit show, I Could Go On Singing Over the Rainbow. When I interviewed FK in 2018, we talked about her recent show Violence, which featured the radically slowed down track The End of the World by 1960s crooner Skeeter Davis, drums by FK's husband Andy Brown, and loops of FK alternately guillotining fresh flowers and walking in a dress and high heels down an acoustically amped runway. A lot of it came from the notions that I was experiencing and that I was seeing of the images or the ideas that we've absorbed about love and where are they coming from and what are they actually doing. Um, where are they coming from is, you know, Hollywood and fairy tales and patriarchy. And what they're doing is controlling and abusing and manipulating and murdering people. And, you know, on a really kind of personal level, there was things about the way the relationships that I was having that were not working. Yeah, just kind of repeated patterns and repeated situations that were harmful in some Mm -hmm. way. And I really started looking at codependency and had quite a lot of horrible (laughs) insights in that moment and was on this kind of process of really breaking a lot of unhealthy habits and, yeah, realising that some of the fantasies and the dreams that I'd held about love... They were fake, you know, they were damaging and they weren't authentic. I feel like there's a bit of a kind of line in the sand for me personally with this show. And I guess like with with every piece of work that I make, I try and make it about what I'm obsessed about, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was the whole motivating factor for even wanting to make work in the first place. I don't know a lot of your work in detail, but one of the things I recognise is that you combine romance like Judy Garland mm. and and costume elements of costume so in violence a frock and, yeah. and flowers and into yeah. shoes and things like that and the music in the music when it starts yeah and violence is that part of what you're talking about when yeah you talk about love, love and violence, and violence and yeah music? for sure and extremes just always extremes I feel like a lot of my life has been in extremes and when I place those things together in a piece of work they draw out the tensions yeah. of each other just you know nice dresses and flowers and just knives and you know bloodshed I like horror movies and I always have flowers in my house but they're delivered separately Mm. but together in a piece of work then it brings out yeah the tensions and the similarities and the opposites 
I'm interested in how you make your work. Yeah. So you started with a name because you knew you wanted to do that. And yeah. it was all caps. Yeah. <laughs> all capital yeah. letters. <laughs> and what you were obsessing with. Yeah. And then you just always bring in what I think is your sort of the palette that you work with. Like yeah. noise music and, and collaboration. Yeah. And your body and ritual. Yeah. So... Can you talk a bit about what the process is, like how you compose? Is it, yeah. you, know, so you start with an impulse? And... I do start with an impulse, yeah. and I do definitely start with a very big bit of unsculpted clay. You know, that might be Judy Garland, or it might be, I just want to smash up a car. A lot of that in violence was the real loneliness that I'd been experiencing. touring a lot and I was making a lot of work and I was traveling a lot and and I was busy and and there was loads and loads of things that were successful and then I was just like crushingly lonely throughout it all. of it is acknowledging that like being honest about that and then a lot of in terms of like process I just get on with living my life there's this quote of be regular and ordinary in your life so that you can be violent and original in your work so from that acknowledgement I then have a pretty structured day-to-day life and the thing about having a quite an, an ordered day-to-day life is that it creates a lot of mental space. Mm-hmm. And in that time, that's when I'm like listening for inspiration, for thoughts mm-hmm. and, and also paying attention. You know, what am I physically doing repeatedly? So in violence, there's a lot of um, walking and that was just a, yeah, a really genuine thing of a lot of what I was doing to fill in time was walking so yeah that that thing of paying attention to stuff and trusting the process of that and meditating and staying sober which has been for how long i've not drank for coming up for nine years and i've not done drugs for four years so four years of clean and sober time but the nine years is significant because drinking was the most damaging chaotic thing in my experience yeah so that's really the most important thing follow up on on the loneliness because one of the things um that is so profound and i could go on singing is the the apparent connections that audience Mm -hmm. members have with you in that performance 
so the performance where you sing um, with Judy Garland again and again mm. over the rainbow. Yeah. Audiences have profound experiences, I'm, yeah. I'm sure, you know, and I presume you have some really yeah. profound experiences. And, and there's probably a difference between the profound experience of intimacy in that context mm-hmm. and then going home after. So yeah. could you talk a little bit about how you feel lonely in that work or not, or how it feels from inside? I mean, we've been doing that show for five years now. So, you know, I've held hundreds of hands and sang that song hundreds of times. And it's a real, genuine, absolute honour to do that as often as I have. And when I first made it, I thought some people are going to love this and some people are going to really hate it. The idea that I would ever get asked to do it again did not enter my mind at all. I remember when I was making it and I said to somebody, I think I'm making something that's bigger than I understand. It was a really um, intense personal process to make that show. And, and the day after I did it for the first time was the last day that I did drugs. So there was something in that I was making that was life-changing that I didn't know what was happening. And I think part of the intimacy that's created is... Yeah, absolutely, through my vulnerability. And I think sometimes people have a need met that they didn't know that they had. And I think what sometimes happens in that piece is that we're not talking about your loneliness, my loneliness, your sorrow, my sorrow, your dreams that have died, my dreams that have died. We're not talking about that, but we are experiencing that for four and a half minutes which is a short amount of time, but actually when you're standing holding somebody's hand, looking at them in the eye, it's a really long time. And I think that disarms people a lot. And also because it's a choice. So can you describe the performance? Sure. Can you describe Um, the performance for people who haven't seen it? So essentially a one-to-one performance. It's myself and um, Okashima Island Tourist Association who are a noise band in Glasgow. People are invited into the space and it's a kind of free space in terms of it's not sitting down in a theatre. I'm at the front and Lee and Sarah are at the back and they're playing noise that is constant wall of noise. And the invitation is for someone to approach me and then I sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow to them, holding their hand and not breaking eye contact. And there's a kind of little bit in between each person where I put on red glittery shoes and a black glittery jacket and I put on lipstick and after each song I take the shoes and the jacket off and kind of reset and get ready for the next person. I think sometimes people, even if they don't feel anything in that moment, they have respect that I've done that for like three hours. The yeah, longest. It's a thing. long durational. Performance. We do it for an hour and we do it for three hours, depending on the festival. And yep. when we first did it in Edinburgh Festival in 2016, it was 
clear that I wasn't going to do it for three hours every night. For a whole month? For a month. Um, the first time we did it was five hours. Oh, gosh. And the second time we did it was about four and a half hours. And after both those times, it was like, I can't. No, probably. No, yeah. no. That's So at the end of 2015, Nick said to me, what, you know, what do you want to do next year? And, and I grew up in Edinburgh, so I was like, I want to do a run in Edinburgh. Summer Hall in Edinburgh were, were really amazing and they gave us a room that had one plug socket in it. And they were like, if you can make this happen in this room, you can have this room. And we're like, Perfect. Good. <laughs> and it was a weird success. Huge, huge success, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we hand wrote our posters. <laughs> I asked someone to like lend me 200 quid to hire a PA because there was, you know, there's nothing in the room. We just went for it. On the first preview, there was like press, press. And we, you know, we sold out most of it and, and we won a Total Theatre Award, which was kind of incredible. Very yeah. satisfying. Yeah, it really was. But the irony was, my personal life at that time was like not great, and I didn't have a like a complete hold on reality for a little bit. very ritualistic and a lot mm. of your performance is ritualistic there's a lot of repetition yeah I wonder if how important ritual is in your work and both for what you think is for your audiences but also for you I guess everyone has rituals that they may or may not be conscious of and being a teenager and, and being in my 20s was listening to the same songs mm. listening to the same records over and over and over and over again I do that mm-hmm. yeah that's very helpful so the thing about doing over the Rainbow was really super personal because when I first really became obsessed with Judy Garland and I was still drinking, I would like get really pissed in my house and sing Judy Garland show tunes and the idea that anyone would ever hear me do it was the most cringing thing possible. So it's like, yeah, what do you know what's in your body, what's already there? And that's the way that I've engaged with with music. So when yeah, when you mentioned about like the kind of palette that I use, mm. music and sound is like the you know one of the biggest things. And part of what I wanted to feel out in violence was what about almost silence or like fractions of silence. Turns out that's you know it's pretty scary. Powerful silence yeah. and blackout. Yeah. yeah, and having um, someone playing drums as a live instrument rather than either like an invisible soundtrack of something that's made and then is press play or noise which can often be quite a mysterious mm. looking thing yeah but Fukushima has that beautiful sort of choreography of, oh. of delicate touch on their instruments and, oh. and rest- physical restraint mm. and all that so it's, it's people are always yeah. like oh how do you sing that many times it's like they stand 
Yeah. They stand. Yeah. You know, they're they stand doing attention for an the whole show. incredible amount yeah. of work. Yeah. Really phenomenal concentration and focus. Yeah. Some of my more like one off action y stuff that has quite often found its home at Buzzcut where mm. they've let me do things with fire and stuff. Yeah. The great festival in Glasgow, Buzzcut. Yes, Buzzcut in Glasgow, yeah. And outdoor things and smashing things up which I, I really love doing as well but some of those pieces are more more of a jigsaw of here's the sound here's the the object here's what I'm going to do here's what I'm wearing which is always super super important and then I'm going to press go and we'll see mm. so some of those kinds of pieces of work are live coping I'm going to cope with what I've done what my past self has done to <laughs> present self I have to deal with what I've right. agreed to do in this moment. Whereas I could go and sing or violence are essentially a lot of choreograph. Mm-hmm. And they're very, very timed. Yeah, and disciplined. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So you talked about costume being really important. Yeah. So can you t- give us an example of a costume and how it functions? So we're building your palette here. So yeah. That, you know. Well, you know, obviously in I could go and singing... I don't look like Judy Garland, but the section where she sings Get Happy, which was like her big comeback number in that film, she was wearing this suit jacket and these long legs and the tights and the kind of dance shoes. I wanted to recreate that that image, of which was one of her big comeback looks. And in other pieces... The first thing that I ever did at Buzzcut Festival was over four days, I destroyed a lot of my stuff. Mm. So I smashed up my record collection and my VHS collection. I know, I know. The record collection was upsetting for a lot of people. Yeah. I burned all my cuddly toys that I got my dad to like get down from the attic at home. And, and I also set fire to a unicorn, like a rocking horse cuddly unicorn that when you pressed its ear, it used to sing over the rainbow. I knew that I just wanted to, I had to destroy these things, though the kind of image was some kind of like Willy Wonka, Marilyn Manson, Hello Kitty, (laughs) yeah, nonsense thing, but it's like an armour in that way. I've done a lot of club night or more kind of cabaret style nights where I smash up laptops and computer monitors and technology, and uh, that's always in a suit with death metal paint. On your face, death metal paint on death your face. Death metal paint on my face, yeah. Which is a reference to rock and roll and it's a reference to the transformative power of makeup. And even in violence, I'm just kind of wearing my normal daily makeup, but exaggerated, I suppose. But the space of time before a performance when I'm doing my makeup, that's my transitional time from FK being a person and, and, and then being in that place where mm. I can perform. So the makeup is quite a kind of sacred bit. Crucial thing in the work is what happens with feelings, which yeah. seem to be your feelings, but also big feelings for audiences. Yeah. And we've talked about that in relation to I could go on singing. Why is stimulating feeling important to you? I think I've, I've always been a really, emo- I'm Pisces. I'm a very emotional person. My dad and I have had this kind of conversation for years and years about my father was, a, was an engineer and rational, rational, rational. Mm-hmm. And I'm the absolute opposite. And he's my adopted father. So we're very similar in lots of ways, having grown into each other. 
But for a long time, he was like, why is it so emotional with you? Mm. The things you do don't make sense. Um, and for a long time, the things that I felt led me to behaviours that damaged myself and others. Mm. And that doesn't make sense. I couldn't do anything about those behaviours by understanding how I felt. I couldn't make sense of it. It wasn't the solution that No. Way. Like, yeah. I had to feel those feelings. I've been talking about it now. There's part of me that's like, oh, you know, don't say too much. And then it's like, well, you know, what's, what use is that, really? Yeah. But um, wanting to make work that, that comes from my, you know, my gut and my heart and my real lived experience. Um, in order for that to transmit something about recovery as possible for anyone and my kind of assertion that everybody's in recovery from anything. Yeah, you know? I think that's really powerful, that idea. Whatever, anybody's circumstances, everybody's, everybody's in recovery from something. Yeah. Everybody's had some sort of damage or trauma. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah, but, you know, again, the word recovery is, is quite often kept to a particular... Yeah experience and and I was interested in using it as like emotional yeah. and um psychological and just all kinds of things yeah life and I think also that you know the, the specialism of recovery being used especially for people who are recovering from addictions mm. or that kind of thing I think there's often a shaming as well absolutely and which I, you know thinks maybe part of what you're saying in terms of hesitation to talk about yeah. certain things because yeah. culturally there's so much shame around those things absolutely because I think it's an illness that is so full of massive contradictions and it's very very hard to love somebody if they are violent and aggressive and incredibly negative and incredibly selfish many other illnesses don't create that kind of behavioral and emotional damage there's still like even language about it alky junky you know i think these are like really objectionable terms and because of the way that those illnesses make people behave which is essentially unlovable yeah yeah and that maybe relates to some of the other vocabulary you you use to describe your work saying that you're interested in communicating ideas about new language new violence and new love yeah so i feel like you're trying to recalibrate a lot of things yeah so what, yeah. what are you getting at with some of that part of it is that when i'm writing like show copy or statements like that i want it to look visually arresting on a page mm. like i love it writing works. yeah i really really love writing when words become the image they're like weapons the way those mm. words are used like they're so direct and they're so big in some regards, new love and new violence, they're kind of meaningless, but they also create an atmosphere when mm. they're being read. Sure. I mean, they're really good provocations as well. And I mean, yeah. I think, you know, even as a reader, you know, it stops me and makes me think, well, what would new love look like? Exactly. Like, what is old love? And, yeah. and what is yeah. old violence? And yeah. why do we need a new love and a new violence? Exactly. exactly. Those kinds of things. You know, could a new violence be something that's like the creation of new things through destructions of old systems and old behaviours and old patterns? I like to ask artists about their training. So I'm interested in, you know, how artists make their work, but also what stuff has come together to equip people to make their work. So that might be formal training, but Mm -hmm. it's obviously clearly other things as well, which some of which you've already talked about. Yeah, I mean, I went to university when I was 30, which was the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. I stayed in school till I was 18 out of spite. Um, Absolutely. I was asked to leave... (laughs) <laughs> and I said no so yeah I'm entitled to my education I yeah I was like well and also I have nowhere to go so mm-hmm. if I leave then you know and because there was a higher drama 
mm. at that time. So if I stayed till six year, I could do higher drama, which was the absolutely only thing that I was good at. What you were waiting for. Yeah, so, and I had like, you know, what were then called behavioral issues. I was yeah. undiagnosed in terms of um, an educational facility of dyslexia and dyscalculia. So I didn't think I would go to drama school. Um, I did like extras work and yeah, again, I was still kind of like pawing at what the door was mm. for me. Um, and my best friend, Sarah Jane Grimshaw, she had done the contemporary performance practice course. And when I was in hospital in 2009, I was there for quite a while and there was a lot of time in that of and what are you going to do when you leave which at that point I was unemployed I, you know I was in plaster cast up to my knees and yeah there was a lot of things that kind of ground to a halt at that time so the work that I was doing in in there was like I think I'd, I want to go to drama school but you know it was like to even to admit that was mm. awful because I felt like it was too late to go mm. and that I'd wasted my whole life, inverted commas. I remember applying for that course and when I handed in the the application and I came back and I was like, there's no plan B. But there was also a kind of very small part of me that was like, I've got a feeling this is going to happen mm. because there's no plan B and because I have to go. Within like a 12-month period, I came out of being sectioned and I started that course. Mm. There was just like this huge 10-year gap of, oh, I like worked in bars and you know did drugs for 10 years that's what I've been doing yeah um, and some of which were presumably also what we could call training in terms of things like your music knowledge yeah and I mean, your, I was, your performance knowledge I was a as DJ. a DJ yeah and... I was a DJ completely randomly my friend came up to me one day and was like what are you doing on Saturday bring your record collection we're starting a night um, and it suited somebody that wanted to like stay up all night and drink the way that I wanted to drink it was a great scene, you know? Mm. It was a really cool bit of time and I really loved DJing for the most part until, again, it was like things are like kind of falling apart a bit and I couldn't be sober and be a DJ. Yeah. So that was a choice that I made at that time. But yeah. I cut my teeth yeah. in those spaces for sure. Okay. Um, I've got two more questions, I think. Yeah. So, and one is that you said that Judy Garland is your spirit guide mm-hmm. um, and that, well, you're working on stuff around Princess Diana. Could uh, you tell us a little bit about the work with Princess Diana, who's another interesting icon of femininity? I think there's lots of similarities between her and Judy and the same with the obsession with Judy Garland. This thing with Diana has just kind of crept up on me. You know, again, it's that thing of paying attention to you know, what's kind of naturally occurring in your life and what are you energetically drawing. Um, and Diana just keeps popping up to the extent that I've named one of my new kittens, Diana Spencer. Um, <laughs> and, the and the other, other one, one is Judy Garland. Garland. Yes, the vet had a laugh at that. <laughs> and I think one of the biggest moments to like really shake the monarchy was her, just as her. You know, she wasn't even in the royal family anymore. By no means am I condoning or supporting the royal family, but Diana was killed, Mm. allegedly. I did a piece in London at um, Femtopia, and in that I directed nine people who'd agreed to come and be Dianas. So we were in a children's play park in a school, and I had... Andy, who plays drums in Violence, we had made this bit of soundtrack that's quite kind of like dungeon techno. It's quite like full-on 
dark kind of dancey techno stuff interspersed with quotes from her which when you start to single out quotes from her are very interesting and of course her voice was terribly so I had nine people wearing Diana masks smashing up laptops and computer monitors and TVs in the middle of a playground with hammers and mallets and ah it was very pleasing again similarly with Judy you can hang so many things on Diana. There's yeah, so, and so many, many things have yeah, hung on her. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's a really rich person right. to investigate, and yeah, I kind of love her now. It's so weird. It's just the last person I would have thought would have. It's quite touching, I think, that you love her now. I do love yeah. her. Yeah, <laughs> Well, and I think actually it makes loads of sense to me in terms of the sort of the pariah that she became and, Absolutely. and the way she was treated. Oh, uh, and she, you know the hounding and yeah. The contrast that she contains, you know, her vulnerability, yeah. but also the she was shrewd, yeah, you know, and powerful, absolutely, hugely, enormously powerful, and also just great sadness. You know, she was yeah. happy for like a year. Again, with someone like Judy, it's like God, these women just never get over the rainbow, and yeah, part of my draw to them is like I kind of feel like I have gotten over mm-hmm. some stuff, yeah, and maybe in ways that they didn't but they communicated so like passionately and relentlessly mm-hmm. about that you know and and I don't have a big family at all so I don't have like a mom and a grandmother and you know women that I can kind of trace back my what I'm like through yeah so as a woman yeah, yeah. as a woman so yeah. you're finding your own yeah. yeah I wrote a piece about Judy Garland that was called in praise of difficult women and that was a term that was used at me very often, and very often by men. So um, I'm just very drawn to those women that get accused of being yeah. accused of being difficult, and um, that are also dangerous in their own ways. And your other two other spirit gods you've recently mentioned, which are your kittens, oh. <laughs> Judy Garland and Diana Spencer, and so they've come into your life in the last yeah. couple of months. And so I follow them on Instagram because they're very, very Thank beautiful. You. Thank you. And I'm very supportive of them on Instagram. <laughs> and I wonder how they've influenced what you and what you're making. They honestly do. Like, my domestic situation now is that I'm getting married in August. We have two kids. Congratulations. Thank you. To somebody that I've known for over 10 years. Yeah. And we have kittens and we take our bins out and, you know, that regular and ordinary yeah. stuff. But I work well with that kind of domestic grounding. I was married when I was young and I wasn't ready to have that kind of... I wanted that kind of stability um, and that kind of sense of a family that's in your house. You know what? My sense of family, of course, has changed over time and I have a huge, beautiful, incredible family of friends that we've all chosen to be in each other's lives and, of course, that's like... There's lots of queer politics that surround notions about what does family look like now. And as I get older, there's, as well as having lots of nights and festivals and holidays with lots of people, I do want to come home to, hi everyone, you know, it's not going to be children and it is going to be kittens and they bring a lot of contentment. There's been moments over the past couple of months of having them where that thing of just sitting quietly not distracted not with something on or rushing out just sitting with my kittens and maybe you know Andy's pottering about over there and I feel very very contented because I yeah again that loneliness that 
we spoke about earlier, there was a real fear that it was like, that's just how it's going to be for me. And now actually that I do have those things in my life, it's like a very different experience. Mm -hmm. Now coming away to make work is like, I can really focus on the work. I suppose the fear is that it's going to make all my art turn like all soppy and it will just be flowers and it will just be dresses but I know myself it's not going to just be flowers there's, um, they'll um, always be nice uh, they will always it's a guillotine in violence <laughs> there's, no, there's no sign of things no, becoming all totally no, fluffy I don't think you know there's I think there's the pain that you've experienced even if you don't experience it right now it, you never forget it it's yeah. never it doesn't go away so I think it's important to be able to access the memory of those feelings, the sensation of those feelings and that lived experience and make work from the other side of it. I spoke with FK on the other side of the 2020 COVID-19 lockdown. She and her husband, Andy Brown, had been shielding and making music tracks together, mostly me shouting over Andy's noise music, in FK's words. Their third collaborative show, The Problem With Music, was scheduled for the May 2020 Take Me Somewhere Festival in Glasgow, but it was cancelled. FK wrote to me, Sadly, COVID has of course left Andy and I with very uncertain futures, as so many of our friends and peers within performance art and music share. But she also wrote, While we have no idea what will happen, none of us do. We are at least together with health and love. And ultimately, this is the most precious thing. I pray Judy will bless us with the space and resources to again reunite in assembly, experiencing artworks alive and united in sensation, as messy and as joyful as that will surely be. Here's looking forward to that mess and joy from FK. And while we wait for more of it in person, if you'd like to spend more time with performance makers, listen to the back catalogue of Stage Left, including interviews with the likes of Lucy McCormick, Scotty, and Shit Theatre. Thanks for listening to Stage Left from me, Jen Harvey, my producer, Debbie Kilbride, and sound engineer, Gail Gordon.